0: A group of volunteers, I was told, for serving communion tomorrow. I'd like to ask you a question. Were you called? Young people are always asking me about the missionary call. Several people asked me this morning, how did you know that God had called you to be a missionary? And I would like to ask those volunteers, how did you know that God had called you to serve communion? How much praying did you do about it? And how many visions and voices and pillars of fire and cloud did you see before you made that decision? I have a hunch that most of the people that volunteered did so because there was a need and it was one that they thought they could meet. And so they simply said they would do it. I've often been in the position of uh, being in a camp or a conference or some kind of a group where they say, can we have some volunteers to wash dishes? And everybody sits there and looks around and hopes that there will be some. And the longer the silence goes on, the more your conscience begins to speak, and you decide, well, nobody else is going to do it. I guess I better. And you put your hand up. And the older I get, the simpler my faith becomes, and the more convinced I am that God does lead us according to our intelligence. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't want us to be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, the Bible says but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And as Jim Elliot used to say when he would ask friends of his on the campus, hey, buddy, how come you're not going to the mission field? And he would get a stumbling, hesitant answer like, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure God's called me. Jim would say, well, you don't need a call. You need a kick in the pants. (laughs) And... That's what we often need to volunteer for a dishwashing job or to collect the garbage or whatever the need happens to be that we are quite capable of meeting. What I want to talk to you about this morning is the making of a missionary. I recently read a paper put out by a mission board listing the common causes of missionary failure. And it was very interesting to me to notice that the first cause was the refusal to submit to authority. It takes maturity to submit. You know that the the child starts out by being 100% selfish, and it's a long process of education and line upon line and precept upon precept before the parent persuades that child to start thinking about somebody besides himself. And teaching him that the world does not revolve around him, nor does the world owe him a living. We see a lot of people who are physically grown up who are emotionally children because they have never started to think about anybody but themselves. And they have never learned to submit to authority. And this is a very serious business. I happen to have been on a mission board, uh, board of trustees, sort of, up until just a few months ago when I resigned and it's a very new mission board and we had only sent out five couples. And of those couples, three returned within a year. That's rather a sad record, isn't it? One of them for health reasons, which seems to be uh, the usual excuse it's given, you can almost always drum up some health difficulties if you don't want to tell the real reason, In this case, I think it was the real reason. But the other two cases were cases of insubordination, pure and simple. They were people who had not been prepared to submit their wills to somebody else. They were not willing to do what the authorities that God had placed over them had assigned them to do. And so they quit. Their attitude had always been, nobody's going to tell me what to do. And as far as we can tell, it still is that. Well, that is original sin, isn't it? God told Adam and Eve what to do, and Satan came along and told them they didn't really need to. And so they did what they wanted to do, and we've been in trouble ever since. But I asked my brother Dave several weeks ago, we were discussing what we talked about students, I said, what would you say is the primary qualification for a missionary? Without any hesitation, Dave said adaptability. I have always said humility, but, you know, really, they come down to the same thing, don't they? You're not going to be adaptable to other people's needs and to the directives of the authorities that God has placed over you unless you are humble. And if you are a humble person, you will be an adaptable person. I spoke yesterday about how many things are likely to be required of you as a missionary, which you didn't go there to do things that you hadn't the least inkling were going to be required of you and for which you didn't feel prepared. And if anyone had given you a list of those requirements, you would have bugged out right at the beginning and said, well, no way am I ever going to measure up to the standards of being a missionary if this is what it takes. And fortunately and providentially, God does not give us a blueprint of all that is going to be required of us. and He doesn't tell us what is way down the road. He gives us enough light for the next step. Several young people have asked me just this morning, how can I know the will of God? How did you know that God had called you to be a missionary? And one young man said, what would you give as a word to a young man who does want to serve the Lord? And I said, the first requirement is to be faithful in that which is least. And then God will make you ruler over many things. It doesn't begin when you get on the airplane or the boat. A thousand miles don't make a missionary. It begins today in the way you do your studies. If you are a student, clearly the will of God for you is to study. Now, that may be bad news for some of you. You might not have thought of it, but that's the long and the short of it. If God has put you in this institution, then God's will for you is to do the work required by this institution and to do it faithfully and well. Stop and think a minute. If you let's see let me put it this way when you get on that jet plane to go home you think about the mechanics that checked out those engines and you hope that they've done a faithful job and you get on there in faith that they have and in faith that the men up in the cockpit know what they're doing and that things are in working order but if you had done your job As faithfully as the man does his job, who is responsible for checking out those engines, you might have got a better grade. Or, to turn it around the other way, if the man who checked out the engines did as faithful a job as you've done in your studies, would you want to get on that plane? Think about it. What goes into the making of a missionary? Well, I want to give you three things. First of all, the recognition of a master. Secondly, the willingness to endure hardness. And third, a single aim. The recognition of a master. If Jesus Christ is your master, you are then making a commitment to do anything he says. And the first requirement that I always tell students when they want to know how they can know the will of God is... Simply that. You start by saying anything you say, Lord. You don't start by asking for a map or a clear program of everything that God is going to ask of you, and then you make up your mind whether you like it. It's not a smorgasbord. It is a course that you choose, and it is an unconditional course. If you're going to be his disciple, then you give up your right to yourself and you take up your cross and follow. So when you recognize a master, you are recognizing one who will be totally in charge of your life. Many times I traveled on trails in the jungle. The only method of travel where I lived was on foot. Very rarely we traveled by canoe, but that was much slower, much more circuitous because the rivers were so winding. And it's a slow method of travel. And when we traveled on foot, I always had a guide. After my first and last experience of going into the jungle without a guide, I learned a hard lesson. And I got lost, and it took me a good long time to get home. But from then on, I realized that what you need when you go on a trail that that you're not familiar with is somebody who's been there before. And that's what we're promised. When we agree to follow Jesus. He's been over the course, and he knows exactly the way through the wilderness. All you have to do is follow. And so we have to recognize a master, and we have to recognize his claims and rights over us. I suppose the greatest preparation that Dave and I and our other brothers and sister had for missionary work was growing up in a home in which there was no question at all about who was in charge. It was our parents. When my father was away, my mother was in charge. When my father was home, my father was in charge. There was no doubt in our minds that they meant exactly what they said. If they said, if you do so-and-so, you will get a spanking, then if we did it, we got the spanking. There was no negotiation. We were not polled for our opinions. We had family devotions not once a day, but twice a day. We were not asked whether we liked family devotions. I don't suppose any of us liked them particularly well, any better than any other three- and four- and ten-year-old kids would like them if you asked for a vote. My parents took the view that what was necessary for us, they were going to give us whether we liked it or not. The same went for three meals a day. We were... Given to understand very early on that unless we had something nice to say about what was put on our plates, we were not to say anything. My parents were not interested in whether we liked it or not, and were not particularly interested in our opinions about things that we didn't know anything about. Nowadays, we are taught from nursery school on up that our opinions on every subject are of infinite interest and they are equally valuable with everybody else's. You are You have a right to your opinion, I have a right to mine. Well, you know, that's just not true. You don't have a right to an opinion about something you know nothing at all about. My opinion is absolutely worthless about, um, let's say, one of these African students here, how well he speaks his language. Since I don't know one thing about his language, I don't even know the name of his language, what earthly good would it do for me to give my opinion about how well he speaks it? We will assume that if he's a native of a particular tribe, he speaks his language perfectly. If I were to ask you what is your opinion of the job I did on reducing the Alka language to writing, your opinion would be worth absolutely nothing. I think I could say that quite safely because uh, if I were to ask for a show of hands of those that speak Alka here, may I see them, please? I took it for granted there wouldn't be anybody that knew anything about it. I commit myself to a master. He knows what he's doing. He's in charge. He's got the whole world in his hands. My parents were in charge at home, and we give thanks for the fact that we had parents who stuck to their guns. We might differ with them now on some things. There is one thing that I'm sure all six of us would be unanimous about, and that is that what my parents believed, they lived by. And they thought it was important enough to teach us. And so I'm sure that for me, it's infinitely easier than it would be for someone who was raised in a home where there was no recognized authority. It's infinitely easier to recognize the authority of Jesus Christ over my life. What he says he means When I make a decision to be his disciple, I recognize his mastery over my life. And that has helped me over all the hurdles. People ask me again and again, how have you handled bitterness or resentment against God? And my answer to that is, so far as I know, my own heart, I've never been either bitter or resentful against God for anything that has happened in my life for the simple reason that he is my master. And as I reminded the young women this morning at the breakfast, he does love me. There isn't any question at all about that in my mind. He loves me, he is my master, I've committed my life to him, and therefore his claims over me are absolute. Anything he wants to do with me, for me, to me, I will accept. Now don't sit there imagining for a moment that you're looking at somebody who has managed to get rid of all her feelings. Somebody who has never asked God why. Somebody who finds it easy to make this acceptance. You're not. You're not looking at exhibit A. I am very far from the goal toward which I press. I count not myself to have apprehended but I press toward the goal for the prize of the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And I know whom I have believed. It's Jesus Christ who is to call the shots. And so if I am truly humble, which is a qualification for a missionary, I'm willing to be told, and I'm willing to be told by somebody else. I don't have to have a vision or a voice from God. God doesn't deal that way with me, never has. I've never had any visions, never had any voices, never seen any pillars of fire, or had any angel visitations. Most of the time, the will of God comes to me through his word and through people, and through people that God has put over me. I once had to give a short talk in Spanish. Now, I'm not really all that good in Spanish. I lived in Quito for six months with a family that didn't speak any English, and so I learned what Spanish I know in that way. I then went to the jungle where nobody spoke Spanish, and I had to start from scratch learning the languages that they spoke. So it was a a number of years later, after I'd been away from Spanish-speaking people, that I was asked to make this talk, and so I was very apprehensive about whether I could get through it or not, and so I wrote it out word for word, and I asked a a young Ecuadorian woman if she would help me with this, correct my talk ahead of time, and then listen to me give it and correct my pronunciation and whatever other mistakes she might notice. Well, she was absolutely floored. And she said, are you serious? You really want me to correct you? And I said, yes. And she said, you know, I've worked with missionaries for, forgotten what she said, 10 years or something. And she said, you're the first missionary that has ever asked me to correct her. Well, I was amazed. I thought, how in the world can anybody learn this language without asking for correction from the people that speak it? And a friend of mine from Africa told me that in the Sudan, she was working under an older missionary who'd been there for 40 years and absolutely murdered the tribal language. I mean, it was just excruciating to listen to her. But on one occasion, an African pastor who had been working with this woman and under her for many years, was a very respected pastor, respected by the missionaries as well as by his own people, had the temerity to correct this lady in one very glaring error that she was repeatedly making. And she turned a withering glance on him and she said, young man, I've been speaking this language since before you were born. Now you can decide which is the humble spirit. I often think of how Jim Elliott went to Ecuador having graduated from Wheaton College with highest honor in classical Greek. He was a campus clown, often called upon by his schoolmates to stand up at the drop of a hat and recite from memory the poetry of of Robert Service, things like the face on the barroom floor, or the shooting of Dan McGrew, or the cremation of Sam McGee. (laughs) Jim was a mimic. He could impersonate. He loved to put on costumes. He liked to mug. And... He was also a well-known spiritual leader on the campus. He was the president of the Foreign Missions Fellowship. He was the sort that could be picked out of a dining hall line because he was always standing there with a little set of white cards, either navigators' scripture verses that he was memorizing or Greek verbs. He didn't like to waste a lot of time. And as I said, he would go up and grab somebody and say, how come you're not going to the mission field, buddy, assuming that the, man, the burden of proof lay on the man who was not going rather than on the man that was going. He was the sort that could be picked out of a dining hall line because he was always standing there with a little set of white cards, either navigators, scripture verses that he was memorizing or Greek verbs. He didn't like to waste a lot of time. And as I said, he would go up and grab somebody and say, how come you're not going to the mission field, buddy? Assuming that the man, the burden of proof lay on the man who was not going rather than on the man that was going. And then he would go up and grab somebody by the lapel and say, what did you get from the Lord this morning, buddy? And he had a ready answer himself. But he was, on top of being a scholar and a clown and a spiritual leader, a wrestler. Had won the championship in his weight class in four states and had a bronze belt buckle to prove it. It was rather an unusual combination of gifts that Jim had. Well, he went to a little out-of-the-way corner of the jungle that nobody had ever heard of in the eastern part of Ecuador to work with a small tribe of Indians called the Quichuas and to do what his friends call bury himself. So many people tried to persuade Jim to stay in this country because the Lord had already given him such a tremendous, quote, ministry. And he had had great success in prison ministry and preaching on street corners and a radio ministry that he had in Illinois and in various other ways he had lots of options. But he went to this unknown place in the jungle and he started out by being what the great missionary to Cairo, Egypt, said, was a bumbling idiot. Temple Gardner was a graduate of Cambridge University with all the honors possible, and he himself went to Egypt to learn Arabic and become the first British missionary. And he said, I have to be a bumbling idiot in order to learn this language. He had to be willing to make mistakes, be willing to be corrected. Be willing to look stupid. Can you imagine how impressed an Al- a, a Quechua Indian of the eastern jungle of Ecuador would be with Jim's highest honor in Greek? They never heard of Greek. They never heard of a college. They never heard of summa cum laude. But here was a guy who appeared to be relatively normal who couldn't speak the easiest language in the world you know that your own language is the easiest language in the world. You can't imagine why a foreigner has any trouble with it. And a lot of these Indians had never heard any other language. A few of them had heard Spanish, but they certainly never learned any other language. They couldn't imagine how anybody could be that dumb. Now, it does happen to be true that Quechua probably is one of the easiest languages in the world, but it didn't seem like that to us when we first started to learn it. But Jim had a degree in Classical Greek, can you imagine how impressed they would be with his wrestling championship when he didn't know how to pole a canoe? He didn't know how to thatch a roof. He'd never made a blowgun in his life. He wouldn't know what to do with it if somebody handed it to him. He couldn't tell a tree that was useful for building houses from a tree that was useless for anything. He didn't know how to catch fish with his hands or blow up a river with dynamite to catch the fish the way the was did in those days. He didn't know anything. I mean, he had to be retarded. (laughs) Can you imagine how impressed they would be with his spirituality? They were all nominal Catholics. They didn't know anything about anything. They had long since lost sight of any native religion that they might have had. For several centuries, they had been taught by Catholic priests that all they needed to do was put a medal around their necks and get baptized and married in the church, and that was it. So they were not very impressed with Jim's qualifications. But Jim had offered them to Jesus Christ and said, Here they are, Lord, anything you want to do with me, to me, for me, I'll take it. And he acknowledged that Jesus Christ had a right to do what he wanted with those things. I had an experience in my very first year, having worked on the Colorado language for nearly a year and having reduced it to writing, I lost all of my language materials, all the charts, all the notebooks, all the file cards, thousands of file cards, everything that I had done in one year. There were no copies because this was in the days before Xerox. There were no tapes, there were no tape recorders in those days. And everything that I had was in a suitcase that got stolen off the top of a banana truck. And so. It, As it were, in one blow, everything that I had done in that year was wiped clean of the board. Does Jesus Christ have a right to allow a thing like that to happen to a missionary? Yes, he does. I was stunned. I was baffled. I was put on my face before God. But I recognized my master. One of the verses God had given me before I went to Ecuador was in Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. Well, I was tempted to be confounded. It wasn't my idea of the way the Lord God helps a missionary. My informant during that year, the man that worked most closely with me on that language, had been murdered. Just a few months or a few weeks after I received word that my language materials had disappeared, and of course we prayed that God would get them back, just the way I prayed that I'd find that gold pen yesterday, and I haven't gotten it back yet. We prayed that God would get that suitcase back. We didn't get it back. A few weeks after that, I received word from Jim that the station on which he had been working for a year among the Quechua's, where he had rebuilt three dilapidated buildings and built two new buildings, a school and a clinic, had just been destroyed completely by a flood. And so before either Jim or I had been a jungle missionary for quite a full year, everything that we had done was wiped clean from the board. And it's at a time like that that you know where your faith rests. If your faith rests in a particular program of what you expect God to do, it's not good enough, it's going to collapse. If your faith rests in a set of graven images, what a missionary is supposed to do, what your thing is, what people's response is going to be like, It's not going to be good enough. And I'm here to tell you that it's not going to be an adequate faith to keep you on the mission field. There is nothing that's going to keep you there except obedience to Jesus Christ. And you're not going to obey Jesus Christ unless you recognize that he's your master. I knew myself summoned, called, marked. And I want to emphasize that it doesn't mean in any very private, esoteric, strange, rare, and peculiar way. You people that are going to serve communion tomorrow are called, I believe I can say that, with assurance, because you were the people that were willing to say yes. Now, I'm sure that there are people with legitimate reasons why they can't possibly do it tomorrow. There are a lot of you that don't have legitimate reasons, you just didn't see why you should do it if somebody else would. And that's the reason most people don't go to the mission field. There are always a few people that will, but it's mighty few. In the old illustration, if you see 10 men carrying a log and nine of them are on one end and one person's on the other end, which end are you going to help out on? I was one of those people that wanted to do the tough thing. And because I could see that not very many of my fellow students in college were actually headed for a foreign field, I said, well, Lord, I'll go. And unless you don't want me there, I'm going. You can stop me if you want to. Believe me, God knows how to stop you. Third, secondly, endure hardness. Let me read to you from Second Timothy. Paul said to this young man, accept as I do all the hardship that faithfulness to the gospel entails. Now, what kind of hardships do you think of when you think of the mission field? You think of having to live in some grass hut in the middle of Africa where you won't have any electricity or any water and no television and no telephone. Well, the chances are you might end up in a place like that. But most missionaries don't. A lot of them live in high-rise apartments in cities. The physical hardships are relatively trivial. But one of the hardships that most of you can count on is loneliness. And people come to me and say, how in the world did you handle your loneliness? I lived as a widow most of my missionary career, and I also lived alone in many places where there was not even another missionary a good part of the time. Well, when they ask the question using that verb, how do you handle loneliness, I think that very often there's the assumption that there is a neat gimmick. There's some handle that you can get on it, some trick, if you can just find what it is that's going to abolish your loneliness. And as soon as you can get a hold of that, then you're ready to go, to, go out and be a missionary. But right now, you're desperately lonely in the dorm and you're sitting around strumming a guitar, singing all these songs about loneliness and how your heart's about to break and how you've been through such terrible, hard things. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And as soon as I get that all sorted out and find the handles, then I'll be ready to be a missionary. Well, I've got news for you. One of the hardships of being a missionary is loneliness. And you know what? There are a lot of problems in this world for which there is no solution. We live in a technical age, technological age, in which we assume that because everything can be defined in terms of a problem, your single life, for example, is a problem, and this little girl comes on TV and she says, I have this terrible problem with my hair, but now that my mommy bought no more tangles, I have no more tangles. (laughs) And we're taught that everything is a problem, and so we automatically assume that everything has a solution, maybe as simple as no more tangles. But there are some things that don't have any solutions, and if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, Paul simply says, accept the hardship that faithfulness to the gospel entails. How? How do you do it? There isn't any other answer but this one, in the strength that God gives you. In the next chapter, he says, put up with your share of hardship as a loyal soldier in Christ's army. There's very little counseling today along the lines of endurance. We're all frantically racing around looking for solutions. Paul talks an awful lot about endurance. There are mighty few counselors that are going to sit you down and say straight to your face, put up with it. That's what Paul says. Are you getting godly counsel? or ungodly counsel. There's a lot of godly counsel in this book. I got it straight out of the book. Endure hardness. If you're tempted to say, how could God do this to me? You've forgotten who your master is. You've forgotten the conditions of soldierhood and discipleship. There's going to be loss, privation, Loneliness. I lived in a house for one year that had no walls. Loss of privacy. I had people coming in all day, every day, going through everything I owned. I didn't have very many things there, believe me. I had precious few compared to what I have now. One change of clothing, piece of soap, a couple of dishes, pot, a knife, couple of spoons. I had a daughter there. She was three years old. And the two of us lived in this house with no walls. And people would come in and they'd take this carrying net down from the ridge pole and they'd start going through it. What's this? Where did you get this? What's it made for? What's it made of? Who made it? How come you've got two of them? Why don't you give one to me? No privacy. Nothing I could call my own. Put up with your share of hardship. The greatest hardship I endured, as far as physical hardships are concerned, in that place was bugs. I had no protection from the gnats that started biting at 6.15 in the morning and quit biting, thank God, at 6.15 at night. Ridiculous little things, but the kind of thing that can make you angry and resentful and finally decide I can't take it. You go home because you've got amoebas or you've got hepatitis or something. You can always get something, I'm convinced who's your master? What are the conditions? Paul clarifies his aim in Philippians, the second chapter. He said his ambitions were changed. And I look upon everything as loss, my language materials, the station that Jim had worked on, my husband. Everything as loss compared with the overwhelming gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I did in actual fact suffer the loss of everything. Now, that I can't say that. I certainly have not in actual fact suffered the loss of everything. Mighty few things by comparison. But the ones that I did consider loss to me, those I count gain for Christ. And even the things which the world counts gain, Paul says they're useless rubbish. Nothing but garbage by comparison with knowing Christ Jesus. How changed are my ambitions. Now I long to know Christ and the power shown by his resurrection. I long to share his sufferings, even to die as he died, so that I may perhaps attain, as he did, the resurrection from the dead. But, my brothers, I do not consider myself to have fully grasped it even now. I do concentrate on this. I leave the past behind And with hands outstretched to whatever lies ahead, I go straight for the goal, my reward, the honor of my high calling by God in Christ Jesus. The making of a missionary begins with the recognition of a master, the willingness to endure, and a single aim.